Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are joined by guest star extraordinaire Emily Mears, who is a PhD candidate at Florida State University. And she is currently working on her dissertation examining environmental apocalyptic aesthetics. And Emily's focusing primarily on American Southern literature, post-reconstruction. And she's had, though, her own eco-crit published in journals like Confluence and the American Studies Journal, presented her work on eco-aesthetics, natural disasters, and environmental literature at conferences across the U.S. And very, very excited to have her here to talk about natural disasters. Before we jump into that conversation, though, Paige and I want to remind everyone about our season finale for season two upcoming, um, our book club, where we'll be reading Approaches to Teaching Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and Other Works, which is a collection edited by Sharon R. Wilson, Thomas B. Friedman, and Shannon Hengen. And we'd love for you all to read it ahead of time if you'd like, so you can send us in your questions, concerns, experiences with teaching Atwood in your own courses, whatever else. You won't have to read it to listen, but it'll be more fun if we all participate, I think. Yeah, definitely. And we're all reading, like we're reading a lot of Atwood right now Mm -hmm. for prep. And something that we realized a couple days ago is that a lot of her novels, or not a lot, but some of her novels are not included in that. Yeah, it's published in what, 1995? Uh, yeah, 1996. 1996. So, um, and there is, they're doing like an updated version, right? Yeah. So maybe it's something we could revisit and read the updated version as well. Definitely. So feel free to send out your thoughts on teaching Atwood, whether it's just your own personal experience or your responses to this collection. And you can send those to us at Gmail, which is literaturelypodcast at gmail.com, or you can send it to our Instagram, which is also literaturelypodcast, or tweet at us at literaturely101, or 101. I guess I should clarify that. I'm so used to 101, 102. (laughs) I forget, but 101. But yeah, I'm ready to jump into today's conversation. Emily, yeah. Emily, how are you today? Hello, doctor, (laughs) doctor. (laughs) It is a pleasure and honor to be speaking with you both today about natural disaster. I'm very excited. Yeah, we are excited too. And I feel like we should have full disclosure. We had our own kind of disaster uh, (laughs) where we recorded this already and then it it didn't um, save our recording or or recording didn't happen. So this is our second run through for this. So like, I feel like I can't like reuse any of my previous jokes. uh, you know, because you our read. listeners didn't hear them, but you guys heard them and you shouldn't be subjected to them a second time around. Maybe not the jokes, but definitely I think we can revisit some ideas because you all had some really smart things to say. I was very, got me all excited. I think you all can remember by the end, we were all just sort of volcanoes of erupting excitement about teaching natural disasters, which we will get to that point of excitement again, but Yes. Our, our listeners might hear us say like, oh, like you were saying last time. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with like some like just structure, like how, what, what would this kind of class look like? What have we done in the past? What are the goals for this kind of class? 
on like disaster, eco disaster, apocalypse, right? Like all those things fall under that umbrella, I think. Absolutely. I'm glad that you structured, you set up the structure mm-hmm. for this talk with talking about the large umbrella term for natural disaster of which other phrases fall under, as you've mentioned, eco disaster, um, environmental apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic narratives. Because I have taught courses in the past that were about apocalypse more broadly, and then other courses about environmental apocalypticism more specifically, and then having moments where we discuss natural disasters in terms of disastrous uh, weather occurrences or catastrophes. This pandemic has really made me, as someone who doesn't do eco-crit, like I like to read them for pleasure, but I've never really taught it directly. But this pandemic has made me rethink my own definitions because natural disasters for me always makes me think of like flood, earthquake, landslide, and thinking about like what's a natural, like what's the natural part of natural disaster and that like line between natural, unnatural, supernatural, hypernatural, all of these terms that I don't know how to use correctly, but I've been thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that what I'm really interested in is the, like the way we portray like apocalypse or natural disaster in like Hollywood depictions versus what some of our literary depictions look like and how, what the crossovers and the differences between those two are. But also I'm glad we started like this time around by talking about terms because I also am really interested in questioning like the word natural. And so even when we put it in front of a natural disaster, because it's a way of like disassociating like human responsibility or human hand in that, right? So when we say like, well, this hurricane is a natural disaster. Well, it's a a absolutely natural disaster, but it's been mitigated by human activity, right? Humans are also natural, so they play a part in this. And so then it expands to the point of like talking about things like war as kinds of eco disasters. And it's not where our mind goes to when we talk about disaster, because when we, I think that generally for me and for our students, when we think of disaster, we go to those sort of like what would normally traditionally be called natural, right? So like weather events, like Emily said. That would be really interesting to maybe start this sort of course with talking to your students about how language can negate responsibility because I have this conversation with them about things just like passive voice, like the plate was broken. (laughs) It's like, that's what you tell your parents when you don't want to get in trouble. Uh, The lamp's broken. (laughs) Well, who broke the lamp? Um, But how that, you know, amps up to the way governments, corporations, institutions will use that same sort of passive language for the same purpose. The individuals were apprehended. Well, apprehended by who and who are the individuals what does it mean to be apprehended this sort of like vague language and I think exactly what you're saying Paige it bleeds into the way we talk about natural disasters the way they're formed the way we respond to them the way we imagine them that even just the term natural now I'm thinking about how when we at least for me and I think a lot of my students when we conceive the word natural it's a very tame landscape without humans yeah. sometimes without animals as well and like with the blame part it's like that 
when we think of it as like a huge, like a weather event, right? It's out of our control. There's no blame to be laid on like our government structures. Like Katrina is a good example of that, right? This was not our fault. It was a weather, a, a weather event and not, you know, like no way of preventing it. But Katrina was a multi-layered disaster, right? So mm-hmm. the weather event, then the governmental sort of parts um, that didn't fall into place that were never in place, the like, infrastructure of New Orleans, the way neighborhoods are segregated or like people are placed in, and Emily has like such an interesting like in-class assignment that you were talking about last time we recorded about like thinking about spatially like how communities are laid out what's seen what's unseen and I think that sometimes when we talk about disaster we can use natural as a way to veil those things that we don't want to be seen in like in terms of responsibility Absolutely. Yeah. So the term natural can absolutely obscure any human involvement or lack thereof when humans do need to be involved. I think the documentary title, When the Levees Broke, is very indicative of exactly what you were just talking about, what happened with Katrina. Right. So there's a whole human component to these. So I agree that at the outset of any of these courses, it's important to discuss these these phrases, these terms, and talking about what do what do we mean when we say natural, when we see natural disaster. And it's easy to start with natural disaster of uh, weather events, hurricanes, floods, things of that nature, uh, because they are so relatable to a lot of our students, as Paige had mentioned uh, last time. <laughs> but um, So that's something that's relatable, but it's also uh, transcendent across any other sort of what we might call natural event or disaster as we started introducing earlier with uh, what war does to the environment, uh, what a pandemic is, uh, what zombie narratives are. So what happens when what we conceive of as natural goes awry and wreaks havoc? Um, So any of the tropes discussed within talking about these weather catastrophes can also be seen in these other in these other forms of what might be considered environmental apocalypse. Um, so it is useful to have those discussions. Uh, and part of how, as Paige introduced, part of how I introduce these these terms and these topics is to start with this imaginative community assignment. We'll break my students into groups, and within their group, they have to decide amongst themselves what their ideal community would look like. So that not only do they have to draw it out and do their own urban planning, but they have to figure out how would this little society be ran? You can kind of physically see how that manifests once you start thinking about uh, what are, how, how do we, what are, what do our relationships with one another look like on the page? And having that tactile, tangible product is, is really useful for conceptualizing some of these really abstract ideas about, about community, uh, facing vulnerability, uh, catharsis, which is uh, Margaret's point. So what I do is after they've created these communities on page with these spaces, uh, we share them with the class and we, we go over things that are included uh, and what are, what's very important that people have added and how, how well of a, how realistic is this community? How can it be ran? Uh, and then we talk about what might be missing. Um, 
So one of the things that I notice across the board that a lot of people do not include in their community is something like a graveyard. Which so, is because we kind of, in our current society, see death as unnatural. Yeah. That like when we think about what's natural, what's unnatural, part of the disaster is there's death. And not to say there's like preventable, avoidable death is unnatural, but also death is a part of life. <laughs> you need a cemetery. Yes, exactly. So this idea of facing our vulnerability is largely this, you know, facing, facing our own mortality and facing our death. And I think that that's something that not a lot of students come into, uh, into these classes of this, oh, we're going to talk about facing our own death, right? There's this sort of spectacle behind. So if there's some, somewhere in your title talking about natural disaster, there's this as Paige talked about earlier, the difference between some popular culture, mainstream media narratives versus what you, what you approach in the literature when, when speaking to these topics, there's this spectacle involved in the mainstream um, Hollywood version of these events where it's something that doesn't seem like can happen to you when you're removed from it um, versus that having to face your own mortality and thinking of yourself in, in in these situations and what that might look like. So, right, like we, we don't think that, we don't automatically think every day about how, oh, my family's going to die and where am I going to put them? Are, we, are they going to be, ex is their body just gonna be shipped away out yeah. of the community? Um, I was just thinking, this thought just occurred to me as you were talking about Swamplandia. And I know that that's a text that you're interested in and they're living like in the Everglades, is there a weather event? I can't remember. There is not a weather, weather event. Right, they, that's what I'm thinking. But you know what I was also considering is like if we're expanding our way of thinking about like a natural disaster, right? And so if like defining it as something like is a, as something that interrupts life really drastically, right? For a community, for a group of people. I wonder about the mother in that novel and her cancer, right? Cause like, I don't know, I don't have a lot of like, like how to, this is not a well thought idea, but like, is it interesting to think about that character's mom the protagonist's character's mom and that family as experiencing a kind of disaster. I don't want to, I don't even know if I would say eco or natural, but it, it is related in terms of her, mo her mother's cancer. Um, Absolutely. Well, it's also ovarian cancer. Yeah, exactly. So I was thinking and thinking about like how often we like the examples we have of cancer being tied to environment, um, how often women are sort of subject to the diseases that are tied to environment. Oh, and then, you know, we've got Audre Lorde's writing on her own cancer and experience. I, have, I actually pulled up because I was just looking at these, these quotes from Swamplandia uh, yesterday when I was working working on my dissertation because my third chapter focuses on Swamplandia. And exactly to your point, um, so her mother, Hilolo Bigtree is an alligator wrestler, right? She's the star uh, attraction of this theme park. People pay money to come watch her battle and wrestle with the alligators and survive, right? So they go to pay for this spectacle. 
And in a conversation with her father, who, the, who they call the chief, he tells Ava, the young protagonist, about her mother's death. He says, oh, you know, the tourists are really going to want to talk about this. And she says in the novel, you know what? No one really did. Not after I told them what had killed her. I think they were all hoping to hear that Hyalola Big Tree had been attacked by her gators. They were after a hot little stir, bones crushed, fangs closed around a throat, and an unlucky vent of blood. It was interesting to watch the tourist reaction when I said the words ovarian cancer. Cancer was banal enough that they were forced to adjust their response. Um, that their reaction was, they had paid good money to see Hylola Big Tree do her swimming with the Seth Sack. They didn't take a 40 minute ferry ride to eat corn dogs with some big lizards and some extremely sorry looking children. So I think that speaks to exactly your point, Paige, of what you were talking about in the reaction to some sort of natural disaster. Yeah. And I would argue that cancer is exactly a natural disaster as you were as you were pointing out, right? It's something that naturally occurs within the body that wreaks havoc and has some sort of grandiose ending. But it's not always the grand narrative that we want to, to follow. And so I think then this could also be tied to a conversation about media depictions of natural disasters, right? Because we have like the hurricane watches and um, just like the days long coverage building us up to the event. And that something like, there's something uncomfortable there uh, in terms of like, especially when the audience for that coverage is not always the individuals being impacted. And there's like this long wait and sort of weird, terrible entertainment to waiting for like a hurricane to hit. Um, yeah. Well, that gets into Emily, what you were saying, like this, um, the spectacle of it. And that so far, I think we have these course objectives coming out naturally, like reconsidering terms, um, interrogating tropes, but, and then also thinking about the focus of the narrative in terms of like the spectacle. Um, and so like, what is the ultimate purpose of these narratives? Like what is the audience's takeaway going to be? And I think there's like a few ways you could approach this with your students and talking about the, the purpose of literature or the purpose of natural disaster, where you could talk about like the balance between education and entertainment. Um, or you could talk about catharsis and you could look at Aristotle's theory of tragedy, talk about how we have this definition, but it's an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation. So we don't have a set concrete definition. We have different camps of catharsis. The catharsis of a text is meant to get those bad feelings out of the audience or the catharsis of a text is supposed to help an audience better understand those emotions and understand those situations um, or whatever. And so like natural disaster in pop culture, when it's just a big event that comes down, blasts people out of the water, like wipes out people who were not prepared. In some ways that like gets for people who don't live in those places, it gets those bad feelings out. Like, oh, that's so sad it happened to them, but it'll never happen to me because I don't live on the coast. I don't live in Tornado Alley. I don't live where there's earthquakes. But if we think about catharsis in different ways where it's supposed to help us better understand that 
this is why it happened. This is how I can process it. Or I don't know, even other purposes and think about like, how does art help us do that? How do narratives help us do that? Um, it leads us to what you were talking about, Paige, of like those different narratives, maybe those literary narratives where it's more focused on the human internal experience rather than the extravagant special effects of a wall of water or sharknadoes, whatever. Um, I would love to see the way sharknado would be written down. <laughs> but Listen, I'm just thinking I, about like, we're kind of getting this nexus of course objectives. Yeah. Exactly, which makes really important. <laughs> I'd like to put in italics, italics under my course objectives, how much I hate like the hero, the, the guy who saves the day in disaster films, like Vin Diesel-ish. <laughs> I don't hate Vin Diesel, but I hate the, that characterization of like the one guy who no one listens to who randomly has all the information to prevent the natural disaster and he has to save his family, usually by climbing up the side of a skyscraper and jumping from a helicopter or whatever. He has, he has the man-made tools to overcome the natural man, disaster. And, and the man-made yeah. tools, right? <laughs> He's definitely got, he, like, he has to have a penis to do it, like 100%. Which a narrative, which... I didn't think about till now, which would be great to use to counter all this is white noise where by Don DeLillo, where you have the airborne toxic event, which is never really defined. But the thing that always sticks with me from that novel is when he's going through that sort of interrogation afterwards, because he was exposed, I think when pumping gas to mm-hmm. going and um, the doctor or scientist, whoever, who are like examining him, tell him that it may prove to be fatal, but they won't know for another like 65 years. <laughs> like that kind of like length of time though, that we, we erase from natural disasters because it's the hurricane comes, the tornado comes, the avalanche comes, whatever. We have those weeks after of like search and rescue. And then we think of it as over, but not like, okay, well, what about contaminated water and how that's going to affect the people living there? for months, years, yeah. or what about like toxic waste that gets into what, wherever else that. Yeah, and, and the pre and post for these events, right? There's pre BP oil spill post, right? Um, and pre Katrina, post Katrina. And, you know, it's the same way, like the way we talk about this is the same way we talk about something like pre 9-11, post 9-11, like it changes trajectories um at least on a national scale yeah I think novels lend themselves better to that kind of scope of time that for movies you you don't want to watch there are exceptions but for generally speaking you don't have movies that are about 50 years of time and not for natural disaster movies at least I don't think I've ever seen like the slow healing after a flood depicted in an action movie. It's, they wake up the next day, sun rising, arms around each other. Emily, will you tell us about, like, while we're on this, will you tell us about some of the texts that you've used to talk about, like, apocalypse, disaster, like, some of your go-tos that have been students seem to respond well to, or also you could tell us ones that you tried and that students didn't 
really respond well to. Sure. I've been jotting notes on some of the discussion that has been occurring. So I would like to try to interweave some of these points in talking about these novels. So yeah, let's, let's, let's see if we can do that. <laughs> One of the novels that I like to teach that I think is tremendously useful in reimagining some of these timescales and in reimagining the the, the hero narrative, a part of these catastrophes, is Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones. And this is a novel, it's a semi-autobiographical retelling of Hurricane Katrina. Um, so it's mostly, it's mostly the pre, right? There's a lot of buildup to the storm and it ends in the climax of the storm itself. And there's a little bit of its aftermath. We don't see any of the cleanup uh, in the novel, but what this novel allows for discussion and writing within the classroom is very useful in Margaret's point earlier about this weather event as metaphor. So even those who do not experience these certain kinds of very literal weather events, uh, we will all face some sort of weather event in our personal lives, right? Some, some sort of catastrophic moment. And how will we react? Who will we be in this moment when this catastrophe occurs? You could do something <laughs> weather with the A, weather with the H. Exactly, yes. I, I love that. <laughs> Speaking Wait, of say that one more time, Margaret. The, the weather event, you can do some play with the weather with an A versus weather with an H, like, hmm. Weather. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that too. Right. Um, I think one of the things I said last time, and I find this so interesting, is when we have these conversations about, so something this novel does is it's great with the, it's useful for looking at the particulars as well as universals. So particulars in terms of this very specific family and their lived experience through this event. Um, to a little bit broader of what it looks like in black impoverished communities, but also it speaks to those universals that everyone faces, including those weather, those catastrophes. And, and it confronts the reader with, well, who am I in this situation? What would I do? It faces them with some form of vulnerability as well. So that it helps, I think that when novels do that, when they provide a step into the universal, it helps the student be more engaged in the particulars of certain moments. Um, and Paige mentioned this last time, but talking about when the mainstream narrative conversation says, well, why didn't these people just leave? Why didn't the folks who live on the coast flee? Um, well, it's not explicitly stated in the novel, we couldn't leave. It shows you. It shows you very vividly why people stay where they are. And that's for a variety of reasons. But some of it being, you know, the, the poverty that they're in, that like you have one car, it's broken. The message that, you're, that they were receiving throughout, uh, leading up to Katrina, so this whole pre-scale, you see that they're only getting glimpses of... Um, the word is escaping me. 
they're only getting glimpses of the reports about this storm even coming. So you see the radios breaking in and out, the television is breaking in and out. Yeah, and also when reports become entertainment, people like begin to tune them out, right? When there's, for every single weather event, there's a multi-day tracking on TV and it becomes more about like that entertainment factor than informing people of what they need to know in order to survive, then it, then it is a, we, we do tune it out. Like, I feel like I'm guilty of, of having like slipping into that attitude of, well, we'll have to wait a few days to figure out whether or not this is entertainment or actually going to be a weather event. And when you're like a per, like you're, you're someone who doesn't, who has a limited amount of resources, that few days impacts whether or not you can make the decision to leave or not, right? Yes. So something I started to say at the outset was during these discussions, um, it does start to get anecdotal and personal with students, which I, which I find useful in these sorts of conversations. Um, because speaking to the purpose of this kind of teaching, this kind of literature, right, is any sort of literature that is written well on these topics of environmental apocalypticism offers students the tools in which they need to navigate their communities and their own lives when catastrophe occurs, which it will. It happens to us all. And one of the discussions that tends to occur within these classroom and within the classroom setting about who we are in these moments. We all like to think that even if we're not the hero, we're at least somebody who would keep a cool head Mm -hmm. uh, and know exactly what to do. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of people would, would hope that in some cases, like I would either survive or, um, you know, so, or you think, you know, someone who would help you. And um, the the it's the, the discussion steers towards okay well let's the, let's let's bring this down to something that's much lower stakes, right? You're in the parking garage, and you're five minutes late to class. Where is your anxiety level? Who do you become? How are you acting? What are your thoughts? What are you saying to people? Now try to extrapolate that out to something that is much higher stakes. Um, the rose, the rose on the door after the Titanic has sunk. <laughs> and <laughs> exactly. Um, I also, I know this is slightly an aside, but I want to plug just two separate critical works that I sometimes yeah. steer students towards when we are reading uh, Salvage the Bones or something similar to the uh, weather event. Uh, narrative is um, Rob Nixon's Slow Violence. I know that's a little bit older of a resource now, uh, but that's, it's about the environmentalism of the poor and this scales that you were all discussing earlier about the effects that we don't immediately see, um, but that have a very long lasting effect and um, tangential effects. So when you say how many people maybe, I don't, I don't know, had, died of cholera because of the situation and where they were living after the storm months later when there wasn't cleanup or 
something to that extent. Um, and also in the environmental keywords. I love that you brought up the key terms because I think that's a really great resource in light of everything we've talked about. So um, do you use the environmental key terms in your class? I have, yes, and I find it tremendously useful. And one of the entries is Natural Disaster by Priscilla Wald, and she speaks uh, directly to Paige's point at the beginning of this talk, this discussion on the term natural and how it obscures. So that's also a specifically useful entry within. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having trouble. Uh, well, you know, I was just thinking more about now I'm just like on like bodies and disasters. And I was thinking about uh, like in Salvage the Bones, uh, our main character, the protagonist is pregnant and she doesn't tell her family right away. They, like at the end of the novel, she does. But I was thinking about like maternal, um, like mortality and black women and a teenage pregnancy. And so even there, I think that she's anticipating, I mean, like a future disaster on like consciously with like a hurricane, but also like this thing that's going to happen to her body and not necessarily that her pregnancy is a disaster because I don't I don't think that that's what our author's asking us to think of there, right? Um, but it could be an interesting conversation to discuss this with something like the rate of maternal mortality in America, um, the rate of maternal mortality in black women, in teenagers as other kinds of disasters um, that aren't disconnected from natural, right? Or like the different ways we're thinking about that word. I think it would be so fun, well, fun quotation marks, but to kind of synthesize what you guys were each just talking about with like key terms and also something like bodies and natural disaster to in the beginning of the semester, break your students up into small groups and each group is given a term like, you know, maternal mortality or, or reproductive health, reproductive justice. And another one might be like, um, disability accessibility or um, economic responsibility, if we wanted to go that route, like just all these different kind of terms that have uses in multiple fields, but have them track that throughout the text uh, you read over the semester. And at the end of the semester, have them write key terms for that based off of how it's appeared in the novels, the critical theories we've discussed, all of that. And yes, Paige, that's just me straight up stealing the assignment you've talked about in podcast or past podcast episodes because I really like that. Yeah, no, it's totally, totally fine. Right, and uh, I did not get the opportunity to listen to that podcast. So Margaret, if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on that assignment. Yes, so Paige has talked about it in the past where I'm going to not get this all correct, but um, where her students as individuals, I think a lot of times are uh, select words. And over the course of the semester, they research those words, how they're used, the history of that word, its evolution, 
Um, and they write different papers about that, that term over the semester. And at the end, they create an anthology together as a class and each, um, the students are broken up into different groups to do different parts of that, like signing the order, the editing, like all of, of that and putting it together. Um, and it's all connected to the course's overarching theme. So like environmental writing um, and a student might pick the term like witchcraft and how witchcraft is um, evolves in environmental literature, something, something like that. Um, and so really interrogating those terms like we talked about in the beginning um, and in the history of those terms on the field um, and the connotations, all of that. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. I, I find those assignments where they can be revisited throughout the course to be uh, tremendously productive and focusing on, so where was I thinking about the representation of the term natural or the representation of apocalypse in this work at the beginning of the semester towards, now that I, we've read through these two works, how am I seeing this represented now? Mm -hmm. uh, or how it's being, um, what the connotation, how the connotation has, has changed from one author to, to the next. I, that, that sounds tremendously useful. I think that uh, I will use that in, the future. I also would like to then come back to that imaginative community assignment, which is uh, I use very similarly because um, I will pull that back out. I'll, so I hang on to them. I, I take them back from the students and hold on to them and we'll bring them out to these groups um, throughout the semester as we're looking at something specific, specific dealing to environmental apocalypse, uh, apocalypse. and then talk about that specific, those specific themes or, or tropes within the novel and how they relate to what they, what they created within their community. Uh, wow. So uh, before I talked more universally about what do you do with your dead to something more specific with a novel like Salvage the Bones would be, um, so what is your weather preparedness plan in this community or where's your water treatment center? Um, how are you, is this a farming community? How are you getting your goods? Are they imported? Um, those sorts of questions. And so we'll continue to revisit that throughout the semester. And some of the feedback that I get from my students are on those long-term assignments that they really can see the, they can see on the page physically how, where, their thought processes have developed um, throughout the course because they have that tangible, oh, here, here was what I was thinking before I read this, now that we've read this and we've discussed it, um, this, is how my, this is how my thinking has evolved. Um, so, so tangible things like the, the growing lexicon and the drawing of the imaginative community um, is, is useful to that, to that effect. Yeah, that, that seems like a really nice way to sort of quantify their growth over the course that it allows them to visualize the, this is where I started, this is where I'm finishing. Um, and I like that it helps really pinpoint their own blind spots, but also blind spots of narratives of, oh, well, this novel really illuminated how this, 
this works, but this novel didn't talk about that at all. And obviously one novel can't discuss everything, but just helping them be aware that novels can't encompass everything, but media narratives can't encompass everything. And to kind of be aware of what are the blind spots of the information I'm consuming right now? Um, how urgent are those blind spots? Oh, I like that phrase, like how urgent are those blind spots? But I think that I, I like that as my minimum. Like, I want to do both, like the key terms and imaginary community communities, um, and teach an environmental like, class that I have no right teaching. <laughs> so we can't wrap up without our question of because it's my favorite question: Who is the Anthropocene, and how do we defeat him? And this is full full circle double from full circle. But Anthropocene is one of those terms that is outside of eco-crit, environmental lit, and just always unsure of definition. It is not reg regularly clearly defined in talks and presentations. And so I just always imagine the Anthropocene as like a giant worm ready to descend. Because I know the technical definition, I looked it up, but its uses vary so widely that it always just sounds like something coming down to attack us and, and wipe us all out and then continue on its merry way. But yeah. I'm interested if did you guys both do study eco-lit and eco-crit? Well, we touched on this when we recorded the first time about how it's really a term that's become a, like, became a catch-all. Um, and so, you, the kind of first interaction you have with it in someone's writing or their presentation is to figure out how they're using the term. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen like a lot of sort of terms emerge, like to think about the, the like those porous boundaries between the human and non-human, but in from specific lenses. So you've got like the plantation scene, the capital scene, all these other like specialized terms, but even those like sometimes, and I feel like we've all felt this when we get into the scholarship, we get into the critical work, you feel like, okay, wow, I'm getting really weighted down by the different definitions um, or the different ways that the, 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 like the discourse around this term, right? And I think students feel that too uh, when you're, talking and teaching about this kind of stuff. So I like for me, defeating the Anthropocene, and I say that like jokingly, but kind of moving away from that catch-all is to be really specific with my students about how we're using our terms, right? How we're interrogating them and what our parameters are, right? And like not, and that those are very always narrow parameters, right? And that if you you could take this exact class with these exact texts with a different set of like a different perspective, a different set of parameters, and it'd be a very sort of like it, I'm gonna say different again. It'd be a different experience. Um, well, to that point, I've been thinking about this kind of throughout the recording of the texts we we've been talking about when you put them together. Like, oh, you could use these texts to look at reproductive health. Oh, you could look, use these texts to look at academic response to natural disaster. Oh, you could use these texts to talk about memory and rebuilding communities after natural disaster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So exactly that point that I think this harkens back to what Emily was saying earlier about the universal and the particular, that you have these sort of mass events that affect large groups, large communities, and there's motifs that are going to come up again and again, concerns, priorities, but the particulars of it allow you to explore different facets, different nuances, different effects um, at a much closer angle. Yeah, I agree. So thinking on either spectrum of how people approach speaking about the Anthropocene, whether it be its geological time scale or the anthropomorphized boogeyman, I, I do think what is tremendously useful about reading these works, teaching these works, learning about them, discussing them, writing about them, is learning about something that you just touched on about the rebuilding of a community or rebuilding of a space or a society. So I think that for me, the answer isn't so much about defeating the Anthropocene, because I'm not sure that that's quite possible, but I think adapting, like learning how to adapt, learning how to be adaptable, um, which involves, which involves responsibility uh, what does our what is our personal responsibility? What is our responsibility to our neighbors? What is our responsibility to our immediate community, our global community, uh, to the environment? Um, so yeah, and I think that speaking to your point about the particulars, we can't necessarily conceive of something so abstract as global responsibility without looking at the very tangible particular examples and grounding us in something so that we see what that looks like. Definitely. So I feel like we've covered a lot. And so to go from that sort of universe, obviously we did not do the universal of eco disaster, but to get into the particulars, what are y'all's dream course today? What specific particular course would you like to teach? (laughs) So I'm going to flip the script and do something, say something different than last time because, and that I haven't prepared or whatever. So it's just really like in the moment dream course is thinking about women's health and disaster and environments. You stole my page. I was going to say the same thing. Now I'm thinking about it. And, and it's like, I mean, I, so it would be Audre Lorde's Cancer Journals, um, but also maybe Swamplandia, maybe Salvage the Bones. Uh, and I think that there are definitely more texts. These are just the ones we were talking about. Parable of the Sower. I just know that you like those as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And so I would want to talk about how... And I'd also want to do some nonfiction text in terms of like, again, and I'm spitballing, but thinking about like studies on cancer and environments and, um, and women and women's health. And I think that there's stuff out there. Um, I know there's stuff out there. I just can't tell you what, like the name, because I didn't prepare. I just said this off the cuff. Um, I'm going to look for this and see if I could send it to you, but something that may be of interest to you then, if this is what you're currently thinking about, even if it's just in this moment, <laughs> I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll follow through with it, but I'm glad that just right on the spot that this is something you uh, came up yeah. with because it's, it's fascinating. I'm thinking of uh, the event of Fukushima uh, specifically, but 
more generally about uh, the effects of radiation on women and how women's bones will actually harvest radiation much longer. Speaking of time scales, right? Like the time scales of a woman's body function differently. Yeah. Um, so like on a biological level, what is happening in, in those sorts of Fukushima events and, you know, reproduction or for how long, for, for how many generations? Does so interesting. Happen? Also aside, not to rabbit hole too much, but have you seen Dark Tour- Tourist on Netflix? They visit uh, Japan where the nuclear reactor meltdown happened after the tsunami, like was not so long ago, but I don't know the year. Here we go, not prepared again. Anyway, um, but the women on the tour are very concerned with the radiation levels going up because a lot of them are young. Um, and uh, thinking about one woman who is not young, who's an older woman says, if I'm fine going further in and the radiation levels being higher, but if my daughter were here, I would not want her to go because she wouldn't be able to, like it could have impact her having children. And I think that's also interesting, not to mention that just the entirety of that Netflix that, show on tours is very bizarre and weird and interesting. That would be a great text to pull in to your course too. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. That sounds fascinating. I think I saw one episode of, I saw where, did they go to Chernobyl? They did. Yeah. I think, that, I think maybe that's, maybe it's the same one. I the same idea as far as dark tourism. Um, yeah, that would be an interesting course right there. Yeah, the whole course devoted to dark tourism. That um, would be interesting. <laughs> but uh, uh, I digress. My right now, my dream course would be because this is what the focus of my third chapter of my dissertation <laughs> is: is uh, contemporary literature and environmental apocalypse. So. What I'm interested in is I'm seeing this aesthetical shift in how apocalypse is being represented in the literature. And more specifically, because this is what my focus has been for the past few years that I've been writing this dissertation is on Southern literature. So I would be focusing on Southern literature, but I've noticed within that canon, there has been these mode shifts of aesthetics from post-Civil War to turn of the century, 20th century, mid 20th century, the postmodern period, I think there's something happening, at least what I'm perceiving from this, from this reading some of these more contemporary authors. So I'm thinking Karen Russell, who wrote Swamplandia, Jeff Vandermeer, uh, Lauren Groff, uh, they all happen to be writing specifically about Florida, um, but other Southern writers as well. I would throw Jasmine Ward in there as well. The way in which they're representing apocalypse reads differently. There's something aesthetically different different happening and I would like to explore what that is with my students yeah I'm really excited to read your dissertation Emily oh I'm excited to having have it written (laughs) (laughs) I am going to be echoing Paige with the dream course because I can't stop thinking about uh, maternal health and reproductive justice and environmental disaster so Handmaid's Tale, Parable of the Sower, um, even something like White Noise, that fear of cancer in the mother, um, mortality and all of that. And those concerns about um, being able to have control over your body after a natural disaster 
and also those ties which can be problematic between women's bodies and like representations of the land and fertility natural resources um and who controls those resources and and who has the right and um really kind of thinking through how we blame women often for issues of reproductive health and justice. Um, what plastics did you use? Where did you live? What were you eating? Um, and, and how those narratives kind of go back and forth between the fiction and the nonfiction we consume to create kind of myths about women's bodies, which, you know, enable us to control them, <laughs> which now I'm going to rabbit hole, um, hashtag free Brittany, and I will stop there. Yeah, that's fine. I, I support that wholly. That's why our podcast didn't record on Tuesday because we didn't get to say that. And now we've said it on Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> which will let everyone know when this was recorded, <laughs> which is yeah. where we are always prepared in advance, but I'm excited to see what happens next and very excited um, that you were able to join us, Emily. Thank yeah. you. And to join us twice. And I love both conversations. Oh, absolutely. Any chance I get to have this discussion about literature and environmental apocalypse and teaching, I'm, I'm there. And if you need to call me back again, because it didn't record, I will gladly come back again and have this talk with you. It's recorded this time, but there's no reason why we can't have a part two in the future. <laughs> I think we've only touched the surface on environmental lit. So yeah, our next one is going to be women, reproductive health, and the environment. That's that's the next one we're doing. Yeah, oh, excellent. Maybe, maybe, both of, maybe both of my babies can join for that one. Yeah. I think they should. Your baby should always join. (laughs) So thanks again. See you next time. Bye. Thank you both so much.